Hi, this is Bill Arnold. Missed a show or need me talking to help you sleep tonight? I have several solutions to that situation. Here are the podcasts from the show. You are the best for listening and supporting Faith Radio. On the road. And a warm welcome to Afternoons with me. I'm Bill Arnold. I hardly believe it's June 25th already. Crazy. I always think of the, the summer, June, July, and August. They, I want them to last as long as possible. And now we're already coming up on 4th of July weekend. Next weekend already. That's nuts. I usually gauge things by summer activities. And because there's been such a complete lack of summer activities that I'm familiar with, it's hard to gauge what part of summer I'm in. And, but I did hear that baseball is going to uh, start next month, so that's going to be good. Uh, I always enjoy a game now and then. So we're going to have a great hour coming up. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff is already on our studio line, and he is uh, a guest that I want to have on as often as I can. And a couple of his books uh, that I keep on my library shelf, I know exactly where they are. I know exactly how to get to them. And they are the most misused stories in the Bible, uh, surprising surprising ways popular Bible stories are misunderstood. He also wrote a book called The Most Misused Verses in the Bible. And his new book coming out in August is called, Why is that in the Bible? The Most Perplexing Verses and Stories and What They Teach Us. And Eric's uh, nice enough to be joining us today. I want to talk about his book, what, Why is That in the Bible? And I want to have him on again the day it comes out. That's my goal. I don't always reach my goals, but that's my goal. Eric, welcome. <laughs> Hey, it's a privilege to be with you again, Bill. How are you doing? I'm doing good. I'm doing really good. I'm excited for this book to come out because it's it's so novel and it's so biblical and it's so interesting. Yeah, I've got 40 things that I talk about in this book, 40 different chapters that deal with perplexing verses and stories, strange things, funny things, weird things, disgusting things, you know, <laughs> things, that, things that are going to entertain and grip people's attention. Yeah. I wouldn't mind starting with the talking donkey. Come on. <laughs> the talking donkey. Well, I was ready to start talking about the youth group that's killed by bears. All right, let's start there, because I love that verse. All right, so yeah, so that's the title. That's actually the title of the chapter. It's dealing with Elisha and the, the, the children that are mauled by female she-bears that come out of the woods in Second Kings 2. And so the title of the chapter is A Youth Group is Killed by Bears. Now, don't you know, we kind of pass over that quickly in Bible I study? Have a, I just wanted to have a good hook on that one. You right. know, that'll get someone's attention. So, yeah. <laughs> so, so this is a passage in Second Kings 2 that I thought would be great to talk about today just because uh, it is a, a very concerning one for those of us who know the Bible and read the Bible, and we think, what in the world is God doing here in Second Kings 2? So uh, if you have some time, I'd love to just chat about it. I would love to. Let's get started. What God's got, got going on here. So the, so the prophet is Elisha. Now, Elisha is the protege of Elijah. So Elijah was like the, the big uh, precursor to all of the prophets that the Israelites fell in love with. Of course, they loved Moses and, well, at least... In, in hindsight, they loved Moses. You know, those that were actually experiencing life with Moses weren't always thrilled with him. But nonetheless, Moses and Elijah, Elijah, uh, rather, are two of the biggest prophets. And of course, 
we see those guys in the New Testament with Jesus on the Mount of Transfiguration. So uh, Moses would have represented the law, and then the rest of the prophets and the writings would have been represented by Elijah. And so so Jesus is the fulfillment of all of what these prophets talked about and wrote about in their books. But here we have Elijah, who's already been whisked up to heaven in a chariot, right? He's one of two guys in the Old Testament that did not actually physically die, the other one being Enoch, that were somehow taken up to heaven miraculously by God. And Elijah is told that if he sees him go up to heaven, he'll get a double portion of his power. So his prophetic power, his miraculous ability to do things uh, as signs before the people of Israel. So Elisha, his protege, becomes the prophet. He is now the main dude. And he's affirmed by another group of, of minor prophets called the sons of the prophets. They're actually a group of good prophets that are is from, uh, from Israel that meet kind of for study and worship and encouragement. And they recognize Elisha as Elijah's formal replacement, right? So Elisha is now going to perform a couple miracles. And then it says in 2 Kings 2, this is how it reads. It goes like this. From there, Elisha went up to Bethel. Bethel's a city in, in, in northern Israel. And as he was walking up the path, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, chanting, Go up, Baldy! Go up, Baldy! <laughs> he turned around, he looked at them, and he cursed them in the name of the Lord. Then two female bears came out of the woods and mauled 42 of the children. From there, Elisha went up to Mount Carmel, and then he returned to Samaria. And, of course, we look at that, and we're like, are you kidding me? That, you know, this is, but I just need to tell everyone that this is not just simply God arbitrarily causing children to be mauled to death simply for teasing a bald man out for a walk. Okay, that, <laughs> that, is, that is not what's going on here. Um, but it, it gets really... Um, poignant when we kind of look at the words in the Hebrew for uh, for children or for the small boys that came out. The, the actual Hebrew word could designate anyone between 12 and 30 years of age, okay? So these weren't just small children doing sing-song mockeries like you know, Elijah had a baby and his head popped off or something like that, like we did when we were kids. You know, we flicked the dandelion from mm -hmm. the stem and something like that. They they weren't doing that here. These were actually a band of, uh, well, you would say like a small gang. And they worshipped not the God of Israel, but they were still worshipping the pagan god Baal. Now, Elijah had put to death 450 prophets of Baal on Mount Carmel. Um, but Israel was still involved in that idolatry, and so here are these these what young kids you think they're young kids, but they're actually you know could be late teens, early twenties, and they're a band of ruthless guys who really are wanting him dead. They want him gone just like Elijah. They want him dead or gone so that they can continue their sensual idolatry without interruption. And if we go back to the Old Testament, we know that Moses uh, had basically told them at Mount Sinai that there are going to be blessings and curses that come upon you, blessings for obedience or curses for disobedience. And what Elijah is basically doing is he calls down a curse on these idolatrous 
pagan late teenagers that are threatening his life as the new prophet in the land in Israel. And so Elisha just simply calls down a curse. He doesn't actually say what that curse or is, what it's going to be. He just pronounces a judgment upon them. And then it is God who actually causes the female bears to come out of the woods and maul them. You know, so if you put it in that context, it just kind of shapes the whole thing a little bit differently because Israel was mocking uh, God and mocking his prophets. And these uh, these young guys wanted Elisha dead. And uh, so he just basically called out God's judgment upon them, and this is what God decided should happen. That's just so interesting, Eric. I, I know that if you have read that passage or heard about it, how many people have spent any amount of time trying to dig into it to understand it fully? So I love the fact that you are taking on stories like this and helping us to understand it. I even find it interesting that that when uh, Elisha called out the curse, it was God that fulfilled it. Because I'm almost yeah. glad that he didn't specifically say what the curse was. Therefore, there's no biblical justification for the rest of us trying to use that angle with people that we're upset with. You know, one of the things that I do in this book is that I actually take some time in the introduction to this book to kind of remind us of the fact that God is holy and that we are not, and that God in his sovereignty has a right to execute judgment anytime he chooses based on, you know, the fact that we we are wicked, evil people, and don't we feel like we live in a wicked, evil world? Now, thankfully, the Lord, by his grace has rescued us believers from our sin and has put his spirit in us and is transforming us. And And I pray that that's the case for all of us as Christians, that we are experiencing the sanctification of God and becoming more like Christ. So, you know, but for the grace of God go I. But yet we look at the world in today and we just feel it in our souls that there is a sense of evil in this world and, and that God is going to judge this evil. In fact, he already has judged this evil now, ultimately, we Christians are, are not afraid of his final judgment, because why? Because Christ paid for our sins on the cross already. Um, but, but nonetheless, there is still a judgment for the world that is coming. And, and God has the right to judge the world in any time, in any way he so chooses. So we often look at the Old Testament and say, wow, God is so mean. But he's not. He's actually full of grace. And I would actually say there's more grace in the Old Testament than maybe even compared to the New Testament, but it's still the same God. But yet he still has the right to execute judgment. We, uh, I just taught a class. I teach here at Trinity College in Florida. We just took a class. Our honors class went up to the ARC exhibit, uh, the ARC encounter in northern Kentucky. If your listeners are really have a chance to go see that, they have to go see that big, full-size, you know, life-size ark that was built up there to commemorate, you know, this section of Scripture in Genesis 6. And, and when we went up there, it just reminded us, you know what, God has a right to judge this world. And that's what he did with Noah and the ark. He judged the world. He saved some, but he poured out his judgment via a flood on this world. And he has the right to do that. So when we look at stories like this in Second Kings, where the Lord you know, exacts judgment on some pagan teenagers that were threatening God's prophet, we ought not to be too surprised 
you know, when when God decides to decisively deal with it right then and there in order to protect the man of God. And that's what God does. He will protect his people from spiritual harm. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. This world might kill our bodies, but they cannot touch our souls. And the Lord has us in the palm of his hands. Eric, that is so true. Yet you will find a lot of people that will get upset because they'll say, that's not fair. As Mm. if fair is in the Bible once, it's not. Yeah, we don't want fair. I mean, if we wanted wanted fair, we would all be on our way to eternity separated from God. And um, that would be fair of him to do because he is perfectly holy. I think the church today, Bill, has lost its understanding and appreciation and its, uh, well, basically its focus on the fact that God is a holy God. In fact, we see it holy, 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 you know, that, that, that repeat of holiness in Isaiah 6 is just a reminder of how holy and awesome and high and lifted up this God is, how very different he is from us. But sometimes we just like to make God in our image instead of realize that we've been made in his image. Mm -hmm. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff is my guest. I'm going to take a little break. I'll be right back uh, with lots more. We're chatting about his book that's coming out in August, August 18th. I'll be at the bookstore that day. It's called, Why is That in the Bible? The Most Perplexing Verses and Stories and What They Teach Us. Be right back. Welcome back to the show. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff is my guest. He's a professor of Bible and theology and the associate dean of academic affairs at Trinity College in Florida. And he's uh, written a number of books. And the one, everything he writes, I buy and I can't, I can't put down. The minute I pick it up, I can't put it down. Uh, August 18th, he's coming out with another book called Why Is That in the Bible? It's what we're chatting about today. And the comment you made before the break, Eric, was that you sometimes see the grace of God more in Old Testament than New, which was kind of a shocking comment, because there's so many times I'm in the Old Testament going, this is so hard to either understand what the point is, and there's there's uh, violence, and there's, why would God do this? And uh, so this passage you gave us out of Second Kings 2 uh, and helped us to understand that is kind of liberating. It makes me happy. Well, I think that there's just uh, so much in the Old Testament that we have not fully understood because we haven't totally placed ourselves in that world. Now, why was there so much wickedness and sin is the question in the Old Testament. And, of course, we know that as New Testament Christians looking backwards, we can see that even though they were God's people, God's chosen people, and even though he put his blessing on them and led them, they just were always had a propensity because of the sin nature they're born with to go into sin. And they did not have the presence of the indwelling Holy Spirit in their hearts to have the power to overcome a lot of their temptations to mm-hmm. sin. And so so they, they struggled so much more, and God had to decisively act so much more in that particular age and era. And I think we fail to remember that God dealt with them and and could have wiped them out numerous times, but by his grace, he always chose a remnant to save. And of course, that remnant is out of which we get our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so we're thankful for God's grace and not destroying them, even though he could have 
because they were just constantly disobedient. You look at the book of Judges, and you can't help but see the sequel of, of it going a downward spiral all through that book. And it, what does it say? Everyone was doing that which was right in his own eyes. And they weren't following the law. They had no regard for God. Then they got in trouble, and then they cry out to God. And he'd raise up a deliverer. But then it's five minutes later, after they're delivered, they're back into sin again. Oh, wow. It's like, what? What's going on here? So God God is a gracious God for the many, many ways in which he spared Israel and saved a remnant for himself. And, um, and of course, his love for Israel is so strong, he, his Savior was to come out of those people, and our Savior, of course. And so I see grace riddled all through Genesis through Revelation. God's grace just peppers all of Scripture. But, um, but I think we fail to to see the grace that he really truly had in the Old Testament because we're so gripped sometimes by the graphicness of, of sin. And of course, sin is graphic. It, it is horrible. And we, again, we have, we have seen sin in our day and we've kind of broad brushed, cleansed it and said, oh, that's not really, it's just, just a little white lie or that's just a little thing here. Or even how we've become you know, I know that abortion is a major deal in this country, and, and, and sometimes I think that even us Christians don't feel as strongly about it as we should, because we think, oh, well, there's nothing we can do. We can vote and do this and that. But, but you know, abortion is a horrific, horrific sin, and it should it should grieve us deeply that this still exists in this country. And um, but by by God's grace, He hasn't wiped this out yet. Even though we still permit that to happen in this country, so every day is a day of grace, my friend. Yeah, Amen. All right, Eric, let's uh, move on to uh, author's choice. You can pick another great story from your uh, book to be out well, in August. I'd love to hear. I mean, this first teaching you did in Act in Act One of the interview, you talked about uh, you know bears mauling forty two boys. What's in Act Two? Well, you uh, brought up Balaam and the donkey. We don't so have to go, go there. there. We don't have to go there. Oh. I'd rather have you oh, pick well. something. Um, well, I would happy to go to talk. Let's talk about Balaam and the donkey, just because that's a strange story. And and people say, well, wait a minute. How is it that God could open the voice of a donkey? You know, And, of course, we can now kind of feel like that's possible because we've all seen the uh, – um, the C.S. Lewis movies, you know, and we know that Aslan, the talking lion, you know, we kind of live in a world where animals talk in our fantasy world, but you know, this is no fantasy, this is yeah. real life, and if God can create the world out of nothing, he can cause a donkey's mouth to open up and speak. Yeah, I watched Mr. Ed, too, growing up, so I know all about yeah, animals that Mr. talk. Yeah, Mr. Ed, and, right. or people might think of Shrek, too, you know, that's the true. talking, funny donkey, you know, that's the animated animal. But but here we have this situation in the Old Testament. It's in Numbers uh, 22, and Moses is leading the Israelites towards the Promised Land, and these pagan Canaanite king uh, sees this horde of Israelites coming, and he's panicking, okay? So this is a Moabite king. His name is Balak, and he sees the Israelites approaching, and they're camping in the plains of Moab. And so he panics, and he reaches out to another group of people called the Midianites, and they conjure up a plan to, to uh, enlist the services of a false prophet named Balaam. And Balaam is this evil guy who basically is known uh, for putting blessings and curses on people. So they basically want to hire him to put a curse on the Israelites, 
you know, so that they won't come up and wipe them out. But uh, God kind of intervenes in the situation, and he kind of speaks to this pagan prophet. And that's, that's what's kind of unique here, is that Balaam, Balaam doesn't really have a relationship with the God of Israel, but yet the God of Israel, like, invades his life and basically says, listen, you're not going to curse my people. Um, but, you know, the Moabite king kind of doubles the offer and everything, and, and so Balaam kind of arises to go out and to uh, to to do what he's been paid to do, okay? But uh, God says, okay, I'll let you go do this, but you, on the condition that you only say and do what I command you to do. So, so Balaam is out there, and he's riding his donkey, and um, Balaam still is going to take the money from the bad kings and curse God's people, and God kind of knows that. So Balaam's riding his donkey, and and then all of a sudden, as he goes towards this uh, place where he's going to curse the people of God, the angel of the Lord stands in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand, and, and the donkey sees it, but Balaam doesn't. So it's like what's interesting is that the donkey had insight into the spirit world that Balaam didn't have. And hmm. so God, you know, so sometimes, you know, I kind of quip here that sometimes we we can be dumber than a donkey when it comes to <laughs> things about the spirit world. Mm-hmm. But um, so the donkey sees the angel of the Lord with a sword, and she's like, I'm not going that way. So she turns off the path, and Balaam smacks her and gets her back on the path. And the angel of the Lord stands in a narrow spot where they just can't go anywhere. There's a stone wall on either side and a vineyard there. So the donkey sees the angel of the Lord, and she kind of presses herself against the wall and kind of squeezes Balaam's foot against it and scrapes his foot. So he whacks her again. And and, and then the third time, the angel of the Lord goes ahead, stands in an even narrower place where there's no room to go either right or left, so the angel just sits down. And and Balaam was so furious, he's like beating the donkey with a stick, and uh, <laughs> you know, it's like crazy. And and then the Lord suddenly opens the donkey's mouth, and she asks Balaam, "What have I done to you that you have beaten me these three times?" <laughs> and Balaam, this is what this is what astounds me, is that Balaam actually answers the donkey back. <laughs> he, says, he says, "You made me look like a fool." You know, if I had a sword in my hand, I'd kill you now. But the donkey said, am I not the donkey you've ridden all your life until today? Have I ever treated you this way before? And he says, no. You know, so I don't know what's more incredulous, that the donkey spoke in a human language or that Balaam thought it was feasible to even answer her back. Oh, you know, but both seem to be out of the ordinary. Yeah, that's um, tremendous. So Eric, it's an amazing story, but God delivers his people, will not allow Balaam to curse um, God's God's people and the donkey still speaks today. Yeah, I certainly hope you are still planning on joining me August 18th, the day your book comes out, because I'm excited about uh, uh, telling everyone about it. So honored and excited to be with you, Bill. Thank you so much for your time. You bet. Dr. Eric Bargerhoff has been my guest. Why is that in the Bible? The most perplexing verses and stories and what they teach us. That is his book. We're going to take a little break. We'll be right back. Mm-hmm. 
Well, I'm glad to have a chance to talk to Carl Kirby again. He's the founder of Reasons for Hope. It's an apologetics ministry to equip and empower and encourage believers to share their faith. When you can connect in this YouTube generation with those folks, you are doing something right. And Carl's doing that. It's nice to have him back. Carl, welcome back. Man, I appreciate you letting me come back. Thank you, sir. I have uh, enjoyed our last uh, discussion, and I thought it's... I would love to get you back, and you you do such incredibly good work, and you're interesting, and you're funny, and you're engaging, and you're reaching a generation of people that are growing up on YouTube. It's pretty impressive. Oh, man, I'll tell you, that's a, that's a challenge, but I think the Lord kind of uniquely prepared me. Uh, you know, ADD, I find it a gift when you're trying to reach a generation with a 2.2-second attention span. So I know. Now, some of the videos, and I've gotten a chance to watch a bunch of them, they're just so well done. I mean, you know how important it is to have quality and to have all the visuals and all the the content well-constructed and to hold attention, and these videos do it. So, um, you know, what I'd love to do is just give the listening audience a sample of one of the short videos, because right now during the pandemic, a lot of people are concerned about... uh, all kinds of stuff, and the suffering that mm. they're they're going through right now. There, mm. some are thinking the suffering disproves that there's a good God, because mm. they're thinking that. Now, um, I don't know how long that video was, but do you mind if I play that? No, no, please. I'm, I'm honored that you would. Awesome. Okay, let's let's run that. Go ahead, Rebecca. A not-so-new claim is being regurgitated all across the globe these days, and it goes a little something like this. There's so much pain and suffering in the world, there can't be a good God. Well, let's dive in. But before we do, let me tell you, this is the fastest response to this claim known to man and is merely a plain, kind of logical, and no way comprehensive one hurled upon you sans emotion and utterly lacking gentility. This is debunked, after all not denice. Okay, we're going to break this claim down in two parts and respond in rapidly rational rhetoric, rightly rendering reason right before your very eyes. Two little duck ducks all in a row. Let's knock them down. Duck numero one. A good God wouldn't allow pain and suffering. Really, why not? Seriously, what if the temporal nature of pain and suffering was actually necessary to accomplish a greater eternal thing? I mean, that's how the Apostle Paul understands it. Listen to his words. But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. He continues with, I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. And he brings it home with this, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So Paul realizes at least from a Christian perspective, that pain, suffering, and trials are real but temporary, necessary in preparing us for something greater, and not worth even comparing to the eternal life God grants us through Christ. Now, my pal Mr. Lewis, C.S., not Jerry, wrote this, God whispers to us in our pleasures, speaks in our consciences, but shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to arouse a deaf world, a duck dose. If there is a God, he doesn't care about us. Otherwise, he wouldn't allow pain and suffering. Okay, here's a bit of history and context for clarity coming at you solo style in less than 12 parsecs. God creates a beautiful, good, sinless, and perfect universe for us to live and flourish in. We utterly destroy it by our own free will. Then we keep on committing horrible crimes against him and each other, even though we know better. But he doesn't lop off our heads the minute we do something bad. He's patient with us and pursues us in love, steps into time and space as the God-man, Jesus, gives his life for ours, takes on the punishment we deserve by dying on a cross, then conquers sin and death when he resurrects from the dead, allowing anyone who repents of their sins and places their trust in him to be redeemed, restored, renewed, and live in paradise with him forever, even though we don't deserve it. Now, 
Does that sound like a God who doesn't care? Uh, I just love it. Now, I, I don't want to play too much more of that because the <laughs> graphics are so wonderful that go along with it. Yeah. And for those yeah. who are probably in their car driving, they're going, what is that background noise? The poor man's trying to talk. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if, hey, if it's okay, Mr. Bill, can I give them a, a way that they can get all of those videos for free? Oh, of course. All you would have to do is text the message, adios, A-D-I-O-S, space, Bill. And you text that on your smart device to 51555, you'll get an immediate response back that you fill that out. And when you send it in, you're going to get a link to all 15 of the current debunk videos. And when the new ones are released, which we're trying to release when at least one a quarter, uh, we want to do more. It's all, you know, funding and that sort of a thing. But when we release them, you're going to get them before we release them to the general public. And in addition, we have now got 15 episodes of debunk TV. The first 13 have to be ready by August 1. They're going to be shown on a television uh, station up in Milwaukee, and they will also go up there, and you will get them free of charge. This is all free. We just want folks to have good tools in their hands before we release them to the general public by uh, doing that. That's wonderful. Now, I'm, I definitely want you to repeat that. Um, adios. Bill. Adios dot. Just adios, Bill. Space. Adios, adios. space, Bill. Okay. And then uh, just on your uh, smart device, send it to where's 51. My, where's my phone? Five, I'm doing this right now. Oh, thank you, man. So I'm just going to hang on. Five, don't five, don't five. race, Carl. Hold on. <laughs> All right. Um, what's the number? What's the number I texted to? 51555. Okay. And, and then I the just... message is adios, space, bill. Okay. And you don't spell space out. I mean, that'd be weird. So right, that'd be weird. Just hit the space bar. <laughs> All right, I, yes, I just I just sent it, so that's good. So I'll get my copies and now you, soon. You'll get a message, and you fill that oh, out. Oh, got it. Bang, then you'll get all that info. Oh, I just got it. This is awesome. There now, I'm not going to yeah. spend time doing it now, because I'm in right, the right. middle of a live show with you. So, um, <laughs> But I, I love it. Now, these are the kinds of videos, too, that if you are wanting to sort of engage a, a younger mind, someone that has used to growing up on YouTube videos, this is mm -hmm. a, th these are not videos that will bore, bore kids at all. Yeah. I, I, man, you, you know how much you blessed me by saying that because that was the goal when we started making these things. And people think I'm joking when I say uh, we have a generation with a 2.2 second attention span, but that's what the scientific research shows. And by the way, that is less than a goldfish. A goldfish has a three second attention span. That's uh, that's a scary thought. That that's the attention yes, span is. of kids today, and you you know they've got their phones in their hands, and their mm -hmm. attention is drawn every nanosecond to their phone. Then they look up and they're back yep. to their phone. They can't stay focused for very long. I'm not saying that's yeah, just absolutely. about kids, Carl. That's adults as well. You're you're right on, man. Because I can even see it in myself. I I mean, we all have to. I do a whole talk on called whose voice are we listening to, and how much time we're spending in all these all these voices coming at us. And uh, I got my son did something that totally con uh, confronted me. He said, Dad, I got rid of TV. And I'm like, what? I watch TV. <laughs> he said, no, Dad. He said, I took a sheet of paper, drew a line down the center, line at the top on the left side, time spent glorifying God, right side, time spent in the world. And he said, for one week, I tracked how much time I prayed, read the scripture and all this. And he said, I was so proud of myself. I had prayed for an hour one week. I'd read the scripture for an hour and a half. And he said, then I looked at the other side, and the amount of time that I was watching TV, listening to music, playing games, and all this stuff, he said, I got rid of TV. I got a problem there. And that 
bless me as a father because, you know, uh, my son's 36. Who am I to go, son, you got a problem, you need to get rid of TV. <laughs> if, if you got to tell your 36-year-old what to do, brother, you have failed. Yeah. <laughs> they got to own it themselves. And so I did exactly what he did, and I was like, you know what? I no longer, when I go into hotel rooms, which I spend a lot of time in, TV does not come on because I started seeing – I wasn't watching bad stuff. Don't get me wrong. But the amount of time that I was letting it influence me, I had to make some changes. I love that uh, talk you gave. Uh, tell me the title of that talk because I want to hear a little bit more about that if you don't mind. Yeah, it's called Whose Voice? And uh, I used the uh, logo for the uh, television show, The Voice, Okay. Uh, because it's a singing show. And I, I, use a, I use a clip at the very beginning of the show from about four seasons ago. A, Christ, a, a, a singer saying the old rugged cross, and it's like, what in the world? This secular show, a guy sings the old rugged cross, how much guts did it take to do that? And uh, he goes on and wins the show. And, and I kind of use, I always try to do my uh, my talks like a roller coaster. So you do a hook at the beginning, take them on a ride, and then at the end you wrap it all up. And so at the very end, I come back to that clip that I showed at the beginning, and I show one of the judges, Pharrell Williams, who is, uh, I'm not attacking him by his own statement. He's a universalist. He was raised in the church. He's rejected Christianity, but he's a universalist now. And after this singer sings, the coaches will all say something to them, give them advice or whatever. And the question that Pharrell Williams asked him was, what does it feel like to be in front of the whole world and share your faith like that? And I mean, the guy talks about God, and I'm like, he doesn't even believe in God. And the point that I make at the very end of the talk is, Okay, how many of us are living our lives in such a way that the lost would even think to ask us that question? Or am I blending in with the culture? Because we've got over 400,000 churches across the nation of America, and Christianity is almost invisible in the culture. Yeah, I was talking in my last hour about a verse from 1 Peter 1 that says, you know, that we are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy because of our salvation Mm -hmm. through our faith in Mm -hmm. Christ. I mean, do yeah. you do you believe do you believe you exude joy in front of others? You know, Amen, man, Amen. I put it like this: It's almost like uh, you know, I love garlic. I don't know if any of the listeners out there like garlic, but I'll tell you right now, I love garlic. But they wouldn't like it that I like garlic because when I eat it, it just oozes out of my pores. <laughs> I can drink Listerine. I can yeah. take three showers a day. I just flat stink. And I'm going to say to you that that's the way that our faith should be as a Christian. It should ooze out of our pores. We shouldn't be able to hide it. And if we can turn it off and on, we might have a problem. Yeah, it's a great point. It's a great point. So let's talk about some of the other uh, myths and some of the the debunked videos. Do do I send people also to getdebunked.org? Is that a good place to go for now? Yeah. Yeah, they can. They'll see all of the videos up there as well. They just won't get the new ones in the future when we release them. They'll have. They'll come out like a week or so later. But uh, that's a great place to send folks. Yeah. So if somebody comes up to you and, and says it's 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 always wrong to judge people, what what do you say? <laughs> say, uh, are you listening to yourself? <laughs> because you're judging me. So if it's always wrong to judge somebody, you're judging me. Wouldn't that make you wrong? Uh, I think good questions and honest conversations and not being a belligerent, ignorant jerk and just having really good conversations with people is the way to do and challenging them about things that they're expressing. Uh, There are some great questions we can just ask people to get them to consider what they're saying, because many times we don't even realize that what we're saying isn't making sense. Mm -hmm. That's it's so good. Now, in this uh, getdebunk.org uh, place, there's I think there's, what, 15 videos there? And I just have gotten yes, such sir. a kick out of all of these. Um, yes, and sir. you're dealing with, don't ever call me sir, because it makes me nervous. 
Yeah, former military. I, that, I you know, I forgot about I forgot about that, Carl. You are from the military, so God bless you and thank you for your service. Um, oh, I know when I, when I come back, if you don't mind, I'd love for you to tell our listeners a little bit about your story because it is really so interesting. Um, oh, my 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 privilege. Yeah, it'd be great. It'd be great. Um, but you uh, you do such a great job of, of debunking uh, some of these myths and some of these crazy things that people come up with, and you do it in such an entertaining way that uh, I so appreciate it. And again, I just want to say, go look at his videos, and I, I know you're, you're going to want to pass them on to your kids or grandkids, and it's a good place to uh, maybe start a discussion. I'm going to take a little break, but when I come back, we're going to hear more about Carl's uh, story. So we'll be back in 90 seconds. I want you to meet Carl Kirby. You go to rforh.com. That's his website. And he's got a number of outstanding uh, DVD series for teens. And he's just a wonderful presenter. And we're uh, he loves apologetics, too, as do I. And here's a question right before we get to your testimony, Carl. Uh, mm-hmm. We seem like we're living in a very emotions-based world right now. Amen. So there's... there's Oftentimes there's um, things that are conflicting, that, and it's not coherent, and yet mm-hmm. people want to, they, they want to, I don't know how they hold both arguments in their head at the same time. When you're talking mm-hmm. to people, do you find that they're more emotions-based than ever before? Oh, my goodness, yes. We, uh, my buddy Juan and I, he's one of my other speakers, is, uh, he and I are teaching a class at uh, Faith Baptist Bible College right now online since we couldn't do it in person, and uh just today, we covered this exact topic. It is absolutely at the stage where emotions are dictating and not logic. Right. Um, we're not listening to arguments. And I'll give you a perfect example of one of the things that I do to challenge people to think. I, uh, I'm doing a talk on truth. What is it? How can we know it? Is there such a thing? And uh, then I say, okay, guys, you know what? I'm, I've got my posters made up. And uh, th- this afternoon, we're going to go downtown Chicago, downtown New York, uh, L.A., and we're going to do some street evangelism. And I have our signs all made up so we can attract people to come over and talk to us. How many are willing to come? And, you know, the kids are like, oh, yeah, yeah. And then I show them my sign. And it's a picture of <laughs> President Donald Trump. And underneath it, it says, uh, speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. And I said, so how many of you are willing now to come with me downtown Chicago with my sign? And, boy, you have never seen people run. I mean, it's like <laughs> scattering, like cockroaches in light. Mm-hmm. And, and um I had two young ladies once just look at that, and they just waved their hand and went, poof, poof. And I'm like, what do you mean, poof? No, we're not doing it. Why? Him. What do you mean him? Him. I said, oh, uh, but what about the teaching? What do you mean the teaching? What about the teaching? Speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. No. I said, okay, uh, by the way, he's not the one that made that statement. Let me show you who who made it, and it's Oprah Winfrey. And I show them Oprah Winfrey in her speech, very emotional, standing ovation, people crying, and she makes that statement. And I say, now will you come downtown Chicago with me? If we put her picture up there with the same statement, are you going to listen to it now? And you could see the gears running because here's the problem. We have a generation that is absolutely looking at the packaging and not the message. Hmm. We have to get to the stage where we're, we're – forget about the delivery. Whoever's delivering, forget about me, forget about whatever. 
we need a it's called a standard referent to know if something is true or not. And as a Christian, that standard referent is the Word of God. And regardless of who's delivered the message, let's take what's being taught like the Bereans did, compare it with that standard referent, the Word of God, to see if we have truth or not. And it's funny to see that emotions are absolutely dictating and not logic and critical thinking. Hmm. It's hard to believe, Carl, that you would uh, be afraid of getting up and speaking in front of audiences at one point in your life. Oh, I still am. Every time I get up, it's not me because I, uh, Mr. Bill, when you know me, I'm a guy that will hide in a heartbeat. I truly am. Uh, Avoid crowds. I'm not a, like, there's a party. I'm the guy that's hiding in the corner somewhere. I'm not an outgoing person until the gospel is involved with it. The Holy Spirit when, when I got convicted of my sin, when I convict, got convicted of who I was, and then the Lord put that burden on me to start sharing, it turns on. It's the Holy Spirit that turns on when I have the opportunity to share. But I am still scared to death because nobody knows my weaknesses more than me. Nobody can pick me apart better than myself. I know my past. I know my history. I know who I am before the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's not good. <laughs> if there's anything worth anything, it's Him. Yeah. Thank you for that. That's so honest and raw and true, and I appreciate you. Um, so, Carl, if you would tell our listeners about your military experience and how you came to faith, because I, I, I love your story. Well, you, you honor me by allowing me to share it. I was raised in the home of a, a professional wrestler, so I grew up around guys with one name, Crusher, Bruiser, Mauler, Assassin. So trust me when I say that IQ wasn't stressed. <laughs> I was made to go to church. I knew when to stand up, sit down, kneel. I knew when the offering plate was coming. I had ritual, but I didn't have Jesus. Uh, got, went to Japan, and I'm cutting it down, condensing it way down. Went to Japan, got married, met, met my wife. Uh, she ended up getting saved before I did because I took her to church. We were having miracle problems after we left Japan. And I had gone my senior year in high school. I had gone and lived with a uh, family uh, so I could finish up my high school in uh, Lexington, Virginia. And they were Christians, and they didn't have these problems. And so I told my wife, you need to go to church, because these people at the church, they didn't have these problems. And of course, I'm a Christian, because I'm an American. I was raised in the church. She got saved, and it was immediate. But she had been reading the Word of God. She had been reading the Word of God. So she was radically changed. And about two years later, when we moved to Salt Lake City, Utah, of all places, um, my brother came to live with me because he was doing the same things I had done in high school with drugs and alcohol. I wrecked three cars from drunk driving. You name the drug, I pretty much did it. Um, I should be dead or in jail. Okay, that's the reality. When I went into the military, I went in because I had a choice. Go in the military or go to jail. And hmm, I took the easy way out. I went in the military. So my brother now is doing the same things his senior year in high school. He's going to drop out of school and I say, move out here with me. Don't do that stuff. I got the T-shirt. It's not worth it. Uh, <laughs> but if you come here... You got to go to church because if I got to go to church, you got to go to church. So I took him to church. Uh, a few months later, a guy named Lowell Lundstrom, which Minneapolis. I know Lowell. Some of your folks I knew Lowell. You may. Yeah. Yeah. He came to Salt Lake City, Utah for the first time ever, did evangelistic outreach, May 15, 1987. I took my brother to go hear him, not him, to hear the Center for the Utah Jazz, who was one of the guest speakers because basketball was my God. And I took my brother to go hear this guy, Lowell Lundstrom, preach the gospel message. And in this auditorium at the Huntsman Center, University of Utah, the Holy Spirit pulled the scales off my eyes. And I was like, I'm going to hell. I don't have this. And so he is responsible for uh, sharing the gospel. And that's how I got saved. And one of the greatest privileges I had was, uh, gosh, now about 11, 12 years ago, I was in Minneapolis speaking. 
and I went to his church. It was about Christmas time, and I walked in. Crazy story, big church, a lot of people, and there was a door that led to back, you know, the back to the green room and all that stuff. And I went up to the guard that was standing there, and I said, "Would you get Doctor Lundstrom a message for me?" And he's like, "What?" And I was like, "No, no, no, dude, it's nothing weird." <laughs> he came to Salt Lake City. He preached the gospel. I got saved. I'm a life that was radically changed because of his obedience. Would you just tell him, thank you? Wait. I mean, he was a man of few words. That's mm-hmm. all he said. Wait and what? All right. <laughs> and about 10 minutes later, Dr. Lundstrom came out and we had like a 20 minute conversation. And it was one of the greatest privileges of my life to thank him for his obedience. That's just a wonderful story. And your, tell me again, your wife, you met her in Japan? Yes, sir. She's Japanese, Masami. We just, man, we just went through some craziness. I got a whole brand new talk that I'm giving now. October 28th, she went in for a routine physical. Uh, liver enzymes came back elevated. They did an ultrasound, uh, found a mass in her pancreas. We go in, CAT scan, PET scan, uh, moderate, uh, moderately aggressive pancreatic cancer. Lymph nodes are active. We have to wait all the way to January to get the surgery. They take out 60% of her pancreas, golf ball slice cyst, and her spleen. And uh, five days later, they come back. It was not cancer. It turned out to be something called a serosostatinoma, and she's been healed up. So when people want to talk about the death and suffering issue, I'm going to tell you, I just went through the ringer from October to January. I was broken. I was a broken man, Mr. Bill. I'm just being very blunt and honest with people. I had been, I've never been a note taker. I've never been a diary keeper, but I wrote notes during this whole journey, and I was just as raw and honest as I could be with God. And through that whole journey, I have found how much we need God in the midst of craziness. And yes, there is craziness. And uh, we got nothing unless we got him, man, in the midst of that craziness. Wow. Carl, that's just so strong. Your brokenness was at a level that you've almost never understood. Do I have that right? Oh, I never understood that kind of broke. I couldn't even, I couldn't even pray out loud. I would look at my wife. And I would start crying, and it was like, mm. Masami, you have to pray. I can't, I can't pray over meals or anything. I can't, you have to pray out loud. I couldn't pray out loud. I was totally broken. It was just like, God, I don't understand this. She is, she, you know, Jesus is my rock, yes. But I'm going to tell you what, my wife absolutely is a major reason I am where I am today. She has had a massive impact on me. God made the perfect help me for me to saw off my rough edges and to just help me to be the man that God wants me to be. She is, she's every part of, of the ministry as I am, as mm-hmm. much as important as I am. Now you were obviously praying for a, a complete healing, and the news yes. that you received was really quite different from the diagnosis that you felt you were staring down. Is that right? Oh, my goodness. We, we were blown out of the water because everything was, it's pancreatic cancer. Yeah. And, and I think what broke me was that when I, when, I got, when I got online and started reading on pancreatic cancer, I can summarize. And I mean, boy, I'm not trying to be insensitive to anybody that might be going through this right now. But when I read, what I read was essentially, I can summarize it like this. Get your affairs in order. Mm-hmm. There's not a very good uh, survival rate on pancreatic cancer. And I was like, Whoa. I mean, just totally blown out of the water, fully expected my my wife to be taken away in a very short amount of time. And so now I have to, one of the things that I had to reconcile with it was God is good. My wife doesn't have cancer. Hold up. No, God is good whether she had cancer or not. Mm-hmm. He's still good regardless of what we're going through. What we went through, I genuinely believe, was something that has prepared us to be able to offer hope 
to somebody that's going through something as well. And, and that's what I see a lot of these crazy things that are going on for us. They're preparation. You and I have each been uniquely prepared to reach someone that will never listen to somebody else. Are we willing to open up and be honest enough to share that brokenness with people and show them that there is hope? Those broken pieces, Christ can take them and arrange them into an amazing mosaic, an amazing picture, if we give them over to him and let him do it. Mm-hmm. Carl, were you able to stay present in the moment, or did you just race to the worst conclusion with your wife? I, I went straight to the worst conclusion. Okay. I'm, I, I can't lie to you. No, I mean, God I just, bless you. That's probably what I would have done. I was just like, uh, we're done. It's like, what do I do? I mean, I was totally overwhelmed for about three months. Um, you know, the craziest thing was I should not have been because right at that, we got the, the diagnosis of pancreatic cancer on a Thursday, and I had speaking on Sunday, and and I couldn't cancel it. I was like, you know, it's your local. I had to go do it, and I went and did it, and. In between, I did. I spoke two services. In between the services, I was standing in corners crying, hiding from people. Oh. And I got up, and I was able to preach the whole service. The first one, I didn't break. The second one, I broke. I broke towards the end. I broke down a little bit and uh, cracked a little bit. And I always try. I don't want to try and invoke emotional responses. After that service, lady came up and said, you see that guy up at the altar? Yeah. He wasn't supposed to be here today. He was going to commit suicide. My mom, who's with him, we pulled him into church. He's up there praying, receiving the Lord right now. Oh, that's God, so powerful. God, brokenness. Yeah. Carl, thank you so much for doing the show. Carl Kirby has been my guest. You can go to rforh.com. And I'll also um, uh, remind listeners how to text for the videos. I'll probably do that tomorrow. That uh, wraps up our show for the night. Thank you for uh, listening and supporting Faith Radio. I hope you have a great night. I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening. Programming like this is made available through your support. Information available at MyFaithRadio.com.